please be advised that the contents in the Grave Tales podcast series is suitable for adults only. You're with Chris Adams and Helen Golds for the Grave Tales series podcast. Today, from the Grave Tales Queensland's Great Southwest book, The Murder of the Three Murphy Siblings. On Boxing Day, 26 December 1898, the three Murphy siblings from Gatton were slain, their bodies left for all to see. The public destruction of any clues and mishandling of evidence ensured their killer or killers would never be found. Today, this is Queensland's oldest cold case, but there were no shortage of suspects. So before we get to the suspects, tell us what happened. Well, how's this for a picture? In a paddock on Boxing Day evening... Three young people lay, silent and still. Beside them lay their horse dead. Not a sound, no one's passing. It's just a scene of complete stillness on that dark, balmy evening in the country. The next morning, they look like they're sleeping in the sun, recovering from the night before, Mm. except their bodies are covered in ants. And that's how the brother-in-law would describe the scene to the police that day. So why were they there? Where had they been going and what had happened? You know, I feel like I have known the story all my life (laughs) because I'm a Toowoomba girl and this is Gatton and, you know, all those towns sort of somehow linked and it's almost a folklore story being one of the oldest cold cases. And if you drive around that area, before I even tell you what happened, if you drive around that area, it's virtually unchanged. There's really no development there. It's Mm. still very much rural land and it's still very much a quiet area. This is the story of the Murphy siblings. The Murphy family were a good Catholic family from the area. And the area was a young area at the time. There were lots of young people around. There was lots of excitement. There were dances and there were plays and there were races. And it was Christmas, so people were home. On this occasion, on Boxing Day, 27-year-old Nora Murphy Mm -hmm. and her 18-year-old sister Ellen and their brother Michael, 28, decided they'd go to a dance that evening. Two dances on that night, one at Mount Sylvia and one at Gatton. And they chose a Gatton dance, which was 13 kilometres or eight miles away from home. Their family farm was at Blackfellows Creek. So Michael would escort the girls because their mother, you know, this is 1898 and their mother was a, a stickler for how things should be done. Yep, everything would be proper. Everything proper. And they're a big family. You know, there was 10 Murphy children. Wow. Yeah. Brother Daniel was a policeman. He was stationed at Roma Street in Brisbane, so he didn't come home for Christmas. But Michael got time off. He was working at a Westbrook Experimental Farm, which is about 14 kilometres southwest from Toowoomba. It's where they did varying farming techniques. He was also an expert bushman and sergeant in the local Corps of Mounted Rifles and very capable, his friend said. Yeah. There was another daughter, Polly. She was the eldest, and she'd suffered from paralysis after giving birth. So she'd actually moved back home because her family were helping to look after us. It was a bit of a crowded old house. Yeah. And then, brace yourself, Polly's husband, William McNeil, was a Protestant. Well, oh, crikey. How did he get in there? Oh, the family tolerated it. <laughs> there was John, 15, and Catherine or Katie, 13. So it was a big family. Ellen was busting to go to the dance. Yep. She's 18. Yep. She's pretty. She's young. She's lively. She'd been at the races all day. That didn't matter. She's got more energy than all of us. You know, typical of a young girl her age. She had her crushes. She'd been talking to one of the lads there at the races, and she liked one of the guys who was supposed to be playing the fiddle at the dance that night. <laughs> <laughs> Michael was happy to take them along as escort. And Nora didn't really want to go. She was a 27-year-old sister. There is a beautiful photo of Nora in the book that a gentleman in the United States allowed me to use. I've never seen it before, and it's just beautiful. But Nora didn't really want to go. She'd been at home all day. She'd been helping to look after Polly's kids. And she was a bit of a home girl, from what I understand. But Michael talked her into it, and she was very close to Michael. And he said she needed to get out of the house. Okay. 
They got dressed very much in the fashion of the day. Ellen dressed similar to Nora. They had their white straw hats and long skirts, their coloured tops, black lace-up boots. They looked the part. And Michael, despite the heat, wore what was expected dress yep. of the day, a three-piece navy wow, suit. Wow, of summer. <laughs> 26th of December. Yeah. It was an hour-long drive in the sulky, and up they went, the three siblings. And they arrived at the dance at 9 o'clock to find it had been cancelled because they didn't have the numbers for that dance. Ah. Yeah, so they were most disappointed, as you can imagine. Yep. Some reports say they couldn't get a musician to play at the dance, but they stuck around for a while and made small talk with a few people who were there. And then they got back in their sulky and headed for home. Along the way, someone saw them talking to another man who turned out to be their brother, Patrick. He worked at the Agricultural College there. Yep. That was the last time Ellen, Nora and Michael were seen alive by Patrick. By Patrick. And that man who saw them talking to Patrick. Okay. So they didn't return home that night, but no one was too worried because it was a small community. They might have had a big night. They might decide to stay in there and sleep it off before they came home. It was their brother-in-law, William, who was staying at that household too because of Polly. Mm -hmm. He left Jeremiah and John to finish milking the cows. And he rode over about three kilometres or two miles onto Tent Hill Road, which is still there today. And he found the distinct tracks of their family sulky. It had a bit of a wobbly wheel, so it had a very distinct track. So he followed the tracks and then he found that they veered through slip rail into a paddock, Moran's paddock. Must have been a local farmer. And then he saw them. That's the description I first gave you. He saw Ellen, Nora, and Michael just lying motionless in the paddock. Mm. As I mentioned, he thought they were just sleeping in the sun at first. He, yeah. he thought they might have had a big night and just decided to stay there. And then as he got closer, he saw the ants crawling over their bodies. So, what did he do then, having come across them in such a dramatic way? What did he do? Well, it didn't take much for him to see that their clothes were disarrayed and they had been beaten. So this is where it gets a bit of a circus. He jumps on his horse and he rode to Gatton to the police station. Right. Now, unfortunately, before alerting the acting sergeant, William Arell, William raced into the hotel again to ask directions to the police station <laughs> and told the proprietor, Charles Gilbert, about the deaths. So soon Gilbert and a number of other men who were in the hotel have all made their way to the location. So when William's gone back with Sergeant Arell, there's a posse of people at yeah. the scene, a traipsing around the scene of the crime. The um, bodies are still there. The bodies are still there. The horse is dead still there. Yeah, all there, with all these people traipsing over it. Now, in terms of the actual deaths themselves, Nora's death was particularly brutal. So you've got to wonder what this is about. This is three people that have been overcome and killed. Hmm. Nora was found lying on a rug about 10 metres from her brother and sister with her hands tied behind her back by her own handkerchief. Okay. She'd been raped and she was covered in bruises and her body had been excessively scratched all over, which is weird, as though many frenzied hands had got to her. Her clothing was torn and her chest was revealed and she had a deep cut above the eye that actually penetrated to the bone. It was a really brutal attack. Her skull was battered in. The skin was torn from her wrists where her hands were tied. She'd obviously been trying to get out, of course, and was blue and swollen. And a harness strap was used around her neck and believed to silence her screams and throttle her. So it was a horrifically violent death for, yeah. for Nora. Yeah. Several of her teeth were fractured and there were fingernail marks upon her thighs as well as all the other scratches. Now, Ellen and Michael were lying near each other. I can imagine Michael tried to save his sisters. Ellen was lying on the right side. Her clothes were drawn up. Her knees were visible. Her hands were tied behind her back with a handkerchief again. Her clothes weren't quite as disarrayed as Nora's, but they were torn and her underwear was stained with blood. Both sisters had been raped. There was semen on their clothing. And later at the autopsy, that semen was discovered internally as well. Yeah. The hit to Ellen's head was so brutal her brain was protruding and bruises and scratches were found on her body from struggles to ward off the attacker or attackers. Michael, who must have, as I said, valiantly tried to protect his sisters, had been shot and also had a brutal skull fracture. 
His hands weren't tied, so I suspect he might have been shot first, so they didn't have to do that. But he was lying face down, and it appeared at one stage he and Ellen had been sitting upright and back to back when they were struck. Their horse lay nearby, and it was shot in the head as well. And the weird thing is, because there's never been another crime like it, the murderer had positioned the bodies of Ellen, Nora and Michael with their feet pointing due west. So what happened when the brother-in-law and the police officer arrived back at this horrendous scene and found people stomping all over the place? Unbelievable, yeah. Well, when the two Williams arrived back, the acting sergeant had a quick inspection of the crime scene, told everyone to get out of it. He asked a few of the men to remain with the bodies but failed to secure the crime scene from any further onlookers. And he went back to the station to wire the commissioner for backup and a tracker because it was just logical that he was going to try and track who might have done it. William rode home to the in-laws at the Murphy household to tell them of what had happened, which must have been a horrendous thing. And to add to the destruction of the crime scene and clues, poor Mrs Murphy's come down and she's brought sheets with her to cover the bodies of her three children, which you can understand. I can understand that. So with her own hands, she's walked up through the scene and covered each of their bodies. What a horrendous thing for her to see. Absolutely, yeah, and have to do. So Sergeant Arrell has returned to find over 40 people traipsing around the scene. Same day, after they'd been there and cleared the people off once, they're back again. Yeah. He moved them back, but said later on that no matter how many times he moved them back, they kept coming closer. Well, move them back or they're arrested. The awful thing was, you know how I mentioned that their brother Daniel... Was a police officer. Was a police officer in Roma Street. Yeah. He got the bulletin at work. He was on the shift that day and he received a wire about the murder and he didn't initially believe it and asked for confirmation. And as soon as it came through, he obviously headed straight home. The investigating officers from Brisbane didn't arrive until 48 hours after the discovery of the bodies. What did they come by? A slow mule? Who knows? The soil on the paddock was described as soft, so if the murderer had left any marks or footprints or tracks, well, you know, you can imagine with 40 people and whatnot tracking over it, that was gone. There was no telltale marks, and it was just impossible for the trackers, who were usually so good at this, to do their job. Poor old Sergeant Arell was way out of his comfort zone. I mean, this is a man who's been a policeman in Gatton. Probably the most he's ever seen is, you know, somebody stealing a cow. Mm. He didn't take notes or take measurements. He didn't think it was necessary, he said at the time. By the time Inspector Urquhart arrived from Brisbane, the bodies had been moved to Gilbert's Hotel and locked in a bedroom awaiting an autopsy. So this is crazy stuff. I mean, that must have flown in the face of all procedures, such as they may have been at the time. Still, the first thing that needs to be done is that a crime scene needs to be secured, and that's the basic thing. At least stay there and keep people away. Send someone else to do what needs to be done. Or even if they'd left the brother-in-law, William, to do that. You know, maybe because of his relationship, he might have done a better job than leaving people from the hotel with no great experience in this area. Yeah. So what happened from here? Clearly, an investigation has begun, even though it took them forever to get there. What transpired? Within days, Every public space, as you can imagine, had a notice up offering a reward of £1,000 for information that could lead to the killer or killers. But with the brutality of the three crimes, it's often been thought that it might have been the work of more than one person, as Mm. you can imagine. Because somehow they managed to get three of them into this area, secure the two girls. Although it would be possible if they had Michael at gunpoint. Yes. Now, a party of police officers was dispatched from Brisbane to investigate, along with some experienced Indigenous trackers and a stack of ambitious sleuths, (laughs) as you can imagine. And there was nothing enlightening in the first few weeks. The autopsies happened in that actual hotel room. Dr Von Losberg made his share of mistakes. Why not? Everybody else has. He believed Nora had been ravished four times and Ellen twice, or possibly three times, which would, again, give rise to that theory it's more than one person. Because even if you were there all night, I'm not much on male anatomy, but I mean, you know, that's seven rapes. So it's a hell of a lot. Dr. Von Losberg initially thought Michael had been shot and then he didn't find the bullet exit wound, so changed his mind that he hadn't been shot. 
and concluded the whole of the skull must have been inflicted by a limb of a tree, which is about a metre long or three and a half feet, about three inches or seven centimetres wide, so it's a hell of a limb. Yep. Uh, that limb of the tree was found at the scene. It was clotted with blood and had hair on it, so that's what he believed was, was the, the murder weapon. weapon. Okay, so then after his inspections, he released the bodies for burial. It must have been some funeral. A huge funeral, but I just have to say at this stage that not long after Michael's body was exhumed, and a bullet was found in his head, mm. his skull. So another error that was made at autopsy. So yes, the funeral was on Wednesday 28th of December, two days after the actual murders. It was presided by Father Daniel Walsh. Now there was rumours later in life that Father Walsh heard the confession of the murderer but could never say, but that's all hearsay of course. Okay, yeah. The funeral took place and then the burial at the Gatton Cemetery. Flags flew at half-mast, businesses were closed, and newspapers reported there was hardly a dry eye as the three coffins were there on the platform and they were literally covered with wreaths and crosses as you can imagine. Mm. The whole township attended the funeral, and the cortege included over 300 horsemen and a huge number of vehicles. Where does this go from here? Who were the first suspects, and was there ever one that they thought was just right for it? There was a long list of suspects, including the family. William McNeil? Yes, that Protestant. <laughs> he was always going to come up. It, there was a bit of a thought that it was a Protestant and Catholic fight, or that that might have been the cause of the murders. But, of course, there was one more thing that wasn't proven. But, yes, the brother-in-law, William McNeil, Polly's husband came under suspicion. Right. Now, at the inquest, John Murphy, who was a brother of Ellen, Nora and Michael, said he went to bed at 10.30 and he assumed William was in his room. But Inspector Urquhart really challenged him on that and said, are you sure? And he said, well, I can't be sure, but I thought he was. And he said, so you don't know at all, was he there or not? He said, no, I went to sleep almost immediately. I didn't see McNeil early the next morning. I didn't see him till later in the day, but I noticed nothing unusual about him. And then Urquhart also grilled Sergeant Arrell about McNeil raising the alarm after finding the bodies. Yeah. And then he had a go at poor old Sergeant Arrell about, you know, did he take any steps to test the accuracy of McNeil's statement? And he said no. And did he try to find out whether he told the truth or not? And poor old Sergeant Arrell's gone no. <laughs> and then Urquhart's got stuck in him and said, so you rode all the way from the police station to the paddock with him and didn't think to ask him anything about what he found or how he found it? He said, yeah. No. Or what he might be responsible for. Yeah, it's a poor old Sergeant Arrell. But as I said, the most crime he's ever seen is a speeding sulky, you know. <laughs> Were they able to make any sort of case about McNeil? No. Well, more of the family came under suspicion. Urquhart got stuck into the other brother, Jeremiah, asking him why he didn't acquire the assistance of the mounted infantry, of which he was a member, yep. to go search the area for the men who committed the murders. He said to him, you knew they couldn't have got far away since the previous night. Why didn't you do something about that? Which made him think that they suspected a family member of doing it. That's why they all failed to act. Yeah. Then a former boyfriend of Polly's got a bit of a look in, Thomas Joseph Ryan. He was grilled on the stand because he didn't get on with the mother and they thought maybe he was revenging the mother by killing the siblings. Urquhart said to him, did you ever say you would have Polly in spite of Mrs Murphy? He said, yes. I did not say in spite of her. I said when I wanted her, I would take her. Yeah. Did you ever say you would be revenged on her because she took Polly away from you? No, never. She did not take her away from me and I did not want revenge. So he had his minute in the sun. Poor old Daniel Murphy, the father, the head of the Murphy family, also came under suspicion. It didn't help the fact that Daniel Jr., the police constable based in Brisbane, was heard to say at Roma Police Station at the time of hearing the murder, someone at home has gone out of their mind. Yeah, it's interesting. Now, but home could mean Gatton. Could, yeah, just the town. It didn't have to mean their farm. No. But it sort of alluded to the fact it could be a family member. Now, there were other suspects outside the family, of course. Mm -hmm. And if you want to read further on this, a really good book of Stephanie Bennett's The Gatton Murders. And she thought the culprit was Joe Quinn. Now, the slain Michael Murphy was a special constable during the Shearer's strike. 
and Joan Quinn was on the strike committee and they didn't get on. Okay. Now, he was a bit of a shady character, old Quinn, and he had a number of aliases and was in the Gatton at the time of the murders to spend Christmas with his brother. Quinn lived until his 90s, dying in 1945 after a bit of an alleged life of crime. Now, there was another interesting suspect too, Thomas Day. He was a new face in town. He was working for the Gatton Butcher. And police found blood on his clothing. But because we're talking 1890, so they didn't go and do any DNA testing. It didn't exist. And it could have been animal blood. He worked for a butcher. Absolutely. But instead of taking the clothing from him, he washed and boiled the jumper the next day, twice scrubbed it with a scrubbing brush, and that was the end of that. <laughs> and he left a week later. Merv Lilly, in his book Gatton Man, claims that Thomas Day was a pseudonym used by his father, William Lilly, who was a violent, sadist and sexual pervert, and that he was responsible for the murders. Okay. So they're lining up. Yeah. Was anybody ever charged or close to being charged? No. So less than three weeks after the murder, there was still no one, and there has been no one ever since. Well, they got nothing. But you know what's really odd? I find it very odd today, is that about three weeks after, this became a bit of a tourist attraction. Well, the, the murder scene? The murder site, yeah, yeah, became a tourist attraction. There was this unbelievable report from the Queenslander, which I found on Trove, which said, Today I went out again to the scene of the tragedy. It is marvellous that so many people come such distance to visit the spot. Some came from Toowoomba, others from Ipswich, while farmers with their wives and children drive in from Helladon, Forest Hill, Spring Creek and other centres. Today, a party lunched under the shade of a gum tree within a few yards at the actual spot where the bodies were discovered. Isn't that bizarre? Yeah, it is. Well, it doesn't surprise me, but, I mean, to, to be that involved is a bit unusual. I mean, people go and look at places where things happen, but to take your family and have a picnic under the tree where they were killed. I know. And, but it's interesting, though. It's a different mindset. He's saying it's lovely they're being remembered lovely. and whatever. Oh, OK, yeah. Um, good that people care and they're getting out there. While those people were picnicking several kilometres away, the Murphy family were still grieving. It had only been three weeks. And Jeremiah Murphy told the very same reporter that his mother will never recover. So what happened to those people who were involved in this, at the copper yeah. and the rest of the Murphys? Did anything happen to any of those people? Sergeant Arrell, I mean, he deserved a yeah. right royal boot. Inspector Urquhart was not well regarded at the best of times and a report at the Royal Commission noted that his vindictive and tyrannical nature made him unfit to serve as a police officer. He rose to police commissioner <laughs> from 1917 to 1921. Imagine working under him. Yeah. Sergeant Arell, I too feel sorry for Sergeant Arell. He was haunted by the murders and his wife said that he walked around the veranda and the police headquarters for hours at night. He died of senility aged 78 and is buried in Twong Cemetery in Brisbane. Okay. Father Daniel Walsh, I mentioned to you, the local Catholic priest who buried them, he came to the Gatton Parish in 1887 and he remained there for 52 years. That was his ministry. He's buried in that Gatton Cemetery. Mm. Polly, she was the one who had the paralysis. She died six years after the death of the other three siblings. She was 38. Her husband, widower William, who was under suspicion at the time, the Protestant, he received a bravery award in 1917 for saving a child from the sulky of a bolting horse. The other siblings, except for Polly, had quite long lives, and Katie Murphy was the last direct link with the family until her death in 1974, aged 89. You hear round about the places you travel and talk to people that in some circles there's still a lot of discussion about this case, that a lot of people, particularly those who are close to the family, have their own views about what might have happened. Someone said to me that they knew a direct descendant of the family who very much had his own ideas on the matter, but only discussed it within certain circles. It was never really made public what he had in mind. Yes. Now, interesting, there's always been a bit of hearsay about this. A Murphy family descendant named Dennis Coots told ABC's Australian story 
that the brothers and sisters of those murdered and the next generation would not talk about it. And the next generation, which is James and himself and cousins, didn't talk about it either. But it's understood that relatives still live in the area. And I think it's a great shame that no one ever was made to pay, even now when they'd be long gone, for the sake of being able to close that case and to provide some sense of justice. Nobody has ever been charged with a crime. All right, I can't let this go without the opportunity to ask you, having written this story and researched it and looked at all the material relating to it, have you got a suspect in mind? I have read an awful lot on this subject over the years. And look, I have to say that I like Merv Lilly's theory about his father, Mm -hmm. and I think Stephanie Bennett's theories are very solid as well. But because I grew up as a Catholic in, you know, mick environments, there really was that antagonism between the faiths, you know, not so much my generation by any means, but I can remember grandma being very black and white about it. And I can remember one of my friends who was an Anglican saying her grandmother wouldn't have liked her playing with me, you know, in the old Mm -hmm. days. We Mm -hmm. talked about that. I don't think ruling out the religious wards is too far-fetched either. But I still think in my own personal theory, I don't know how one person could have done that much damage. I wouldn't be surprised if it had been a number of people. Or some sort of sectarian thing, do you think? I don't know, but I just think it's a lot for one person to have done in a frame of time with three victims. Yeah. I suppose one of the reasons that this has always been an interesting case for people is, and it's part of the reason we write these books, is because you can identify with so many of the things that were in that story. They're still there today. The Agricultural College, where one of the brothers works, is still there. Police headquarters still in Roma Street where one of the Mm. brothers worked. Family farm, you can still see the same area. Mm. You can drive the road that they went into town on. Mm. Uh, Happened 120 years ago. Yeah. The gravesite is beautiful. The gravestone was donated by the people of Gatton with funds raised by public subscription and reads, In memory of Michael, aged 29 years, Nora, aged 27 years, Ellen, aged 18 years, the dearly beloved children of Daniel and Mary Murphy of Tent Hill, who were the victims of a horrible tragedy perpetrated near Gatton on December 26, 1898. This monument has been erected by public subscription to the memory of the above innocent victims. If you have enjoyed today's episode of Grave Tales, we'd really appreciate it if you could take a minute to give us a good rating. You've been listening to a story from Grave Tales, the series, available in paperback, ebook and select titles on audiobook music by Kai Engels. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram or on our website. Check out our YouTube channel as well or put together your own group and come along on our Great Ocean Road tour.